didn't recognize him on the road to Emmaus. The second such appearing in Luke chapter 24 is later on in, in verse 42, 43, and 44, where he reveals himself to the disciples and they recognize him immediately. And it is upon this recognition and the conversation that happens therein that we see again a critical component for determining what is a messianic song. So you don't have to turn there, but I will read from Luke chapter 24, verse 44. It reads, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So quite simply, what is a messianic psalm? A messianic psalm is one that references the Messiah. It references him directly. And we'll see it also references him indirectly. In general, the classifications for determining what is and what is not a messianic psalm, I'm going to give you three. Uh, it's not an all-encompassing list, but in the things that I was able to review, um, these are the three that most encapsulate what is a messianic psalm. They are, number one, that Christ makes reference to the psalm in connection to himself, as we see in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. The second one, um, and actually let's take a step back because we're, we're looking at the Psalms, but really and truly, the entire Bible speaks of the Messiah. Every chapter in the Bible, every book I should say in the Bible has a theme that points to Messiah. There's a great song um, called He Is by Aaron Jeffries. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. It's a seven minute long song. But he, they sing every book of the Bible and the theme until they get to Revelation. And in Revelation, He is the Messiah, the Alpha, the Omega, the One, the true Messiah. So every book, I, I just want to make the point clear that while we are focusing on the Psalms and Messianic Psalms specifically that speak to Jesus Christ and the Messiah, make no mistake that every book of the Bible in one way, shape, or form, points them out at the Messiah and has a theme that's specific to that book. So, having put that aside, we'll focus back in on the, on the Psalms. So, the first point again, Christ makes reference to the Psalm in connection to himself. The second point in determining what is a Messianic Psalm is that a New Testament author makes reference to the Psalm and ties it back to Christ. We see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, which I will review a little later as we go into Psalm uh, 2 specifically. But a New Testament author makes reference to Jesus Christ um, and ties the psalm back to him. The third point in determining uh, what is or is not a messianic psalm is the testimony of an Old Testament author connecting the psalm or a passage of the psalm uh, with the Messiah to come. And we see that borne out in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, which we're not going to read now. So this is not a checklist that we should use to say, okay, every one of these is checked off. Yes, this is a messianic psalm. But it gives you a general rule, a general guideline of messianic psalms. So now, now we know, for the most part, what a messianic psalm is. Now let's look at categorizations. And Dr. Ralph Wolf Wilson has two really good um, summaries for categorizing what a messianic psalm is, and, 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 or not what it is, but basically what the subject matter is. Um, and there's two points. There's the narrow view, and the narrow view is that the messianic psalm is prophetic in nature and specifically and only speaks to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is not meant to talk about a context and time from when the writer is writing of. Uh, and it points to no one else but Jesus Christ the Lord. That is a narrow view of interpretation of a messianic psalm. The second view that he brings forth is that you can have a general view of a messianic psalm. And that is that it is a, um, sorry, it is, it anticipates Messiah. The psalm anticipates Messiah, but there are other parallels that you can draw from it to David as an example or to a moment in time when the uh, author, New Testament author, is quoting from that psalm. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Um, we'll see that in a minute. So, how many Messianic Psalms are there? You would think that there would be consensus, if you will, amongst theologians that there are a certain number of Messianic Psalms. In my study, I was able to identify 20, anywhere from 18 to 20, I believe, is the number. But surprisingly enough, there are theologians that differ on the total number of Messianic Psalms. For example, Thomas Cheney says that there are none. There are no Messianic Psalms. I will personally disagree with that gentleman um, because I think Psalm 110 uh, is a clear picture of a messianic psalm. But his belief is that there are none. Um, Frank Delitz says that Psalm 110 is the only one. Um, it happens to be the most prophetic of all the psalms. It is the one that's most quoted in the New Testament. In fact, the book of Psalms overall is the most quoted book in the New Testament. So Psalm 110, I'll turn to you one of the later verses, and I'll make it in the order of Melchizedek. So that is where that verse comes in the Psalm, and it is one of the most quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 110. Gary Kukas says that there are nine, but he identifies five that have a glimpse of the Messiah. And then he identifies another five that have messianic parallels. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And remember what I said about Dr. Ralph Wilson on the narrow view of a messianic psalm and the general view. Narrow being it's prophetic and only speaking of Christ and is not contextual as to the time in which that psalm was written. Or general in that it has messianic parallels, but it can also be taken into context for the time in which it was written. And we'll, we'll talk about that and we'll see those two interpretations borne out in Psalm chapter 2. So what's the subject matter of Messianic Psalms? Well, clearly we know that they're about Christ, but there are different themes in these Psalms that are spoken as it pertains to Christ. Um, there isn't much debate as to this list. Um, it, I will not say that it's an all-encompassing list. However, I think we'll all agree once we read it that uh, these themes are going to be borne out in, in our reading of the scriptures of the Psalms. So the, the subject matter is Christ's work, Christ's nature, who he is as Messiah, as King, as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, um, his rejection, being rejected as Messiah, his suffering and his death and his resurrection. So these are the themes, these are the five themes that we see in the study of the Messianic Psalms of what is being spoken of, of Christ, of Messiah. So now we'll... Uh, that's a summary of the Messianic Psalms in general, um, identifying them, the categories, the views, the subject matter therein. And now we'll go into Psalm chapter 2 and, and take the rest of the time this evening to study uh, Psalm chapter 2 specifically. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm chapter 2, we read, Why do the heathen rage? 
and the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath set unto me. Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. May God bless the reading of his word. So in an overview, Messiah in this chapter is presented as the son of God, as the king is the one who will come forth and establish his kingdom here on earth. We see two different subject matter. I said earlier about the different subjects in covering Messianic Psalm. In this one, we're seeing Christ, his nature, as the Son of God, as the only begotten, as the uh, true Messiah, the true King. And we see his work. He will be a king. He will rule. There will be judgment, but he will rule in righteousness. When we look at this psalm, we can break it down into three subsections, and we're going to divide. We're going to go through these subsections uh, today in a minute. But um, you can categorize this psalm uh, in this fashion: verses one through six, the nations conspire against God and His anointed. Verses seven through nine, the decree given by God that Messiah will rule the earth and all opposition will be destroyed. And verses ten through twelve, God issues a warning but ends with the benediction provided they obey. So, nations conspire against God. So the psalm starts with, why do the heathens rage? And why do the people imagine a main thing? So let's take a step back for a second and think that man in his folly, the folly of man to raise his fist against God and oppose the grand plan that he has proposed. Yet this is what's happening here. So, and thinking about a vain thing and, and just what comes to mind is the nation of Israel when they're in the desert and Moses goes off to get the, the commandments and the nation of Israel turns to Aaron and says, hey, make a graven image for us because Moses is tarrying from coming down and we don't know what's happened to him. So we want to worship uh, this vain image. I mean, think about that. You're talking about not too long ago, they were caught between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea and God miraculously opens up the Red Sea, saves them, and not only just saves them from that destruction, but then annihilates the Egyptian army by having the Red Sea cover on over them. And all the miracles therein, from captivity in Egypt all the way to that point in time, yet they imagined in their heads a vain thing and asked for a graven image to be made. I mean, that is, before we cast judgment on the nation of Israel, we're no different. We are so not different. I know I'm not different. I'll speak for myself. The, the, the stupid things, the folly in my heart of, of not realizing the things that I'm doing and how that just 
injures and, and, and hurts a holy God that's done everything for us. So just the, the, the chapter starts with how the nations just come together against the royal God. It's, it's just amazing. But verse 6 gives us comfort. Verse 6 gives us comfort because it says, Yet I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. Ultimately, God is in control. And it doesn't matter. We're living in a time right now where we're seeing prophecies unfolding. Um, I must confess, I was stunned when Aaron came up and spoke about Russia and how, how long it's been since Russia has gone into Syria and thinking about Gog and Magog and what those nations represent today and all the prophecies that are unfolding and where we are headed. But thanks be to God that we have our faith and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we're not going to live and suffer through those end times. At least I, I believe that we will be raptured. At least that's my belief of interpretation of the scriptures. We can debate that later if you'd like. Um, but God is in control. God is ultimately in control. So no matter what man tries to do, what, no matter what man tries to conjure up and fight against God, ultimately God has won. The battle has won. So Psalm 2, we talked about the narrow view and the general view. So is, is Psalm 2 really only about Jesus? So let's take a moment to just explore that real quickly. And we look in Samuel chapter 2, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, and the same is the city of David. And we read later on in verses 17 through 20. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it, and went down to the hold. And the Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Will thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thy hand. And David came to Valparaisim, and David smote them there, and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me, as the breach of the waters. Therefore, he called the name of that place Verazim. So, we see here, a. if you look at the first few verses of, of Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we see, again, the general view, the interpretation of that one section of that it is messianic because there is a time where the nations are going to come up against, against God, against his anointed one, the Lord Jesus, and try to overthrow him. But in like manner, David was now king of Israel, and yet the nations around him were coming together to try to overthrow him. And God gives him the victory. God gives David the victory. We know David as a type of Christ. And God has already given the victory to his, Lord, his son, the Lord Jesus, who will reign over all earth. So you have a general interpretation. And again, the narrow view and the general view and the interpretation of, of Messianic Psalms, they can overlap. They're not absolute. And we see it here that in this verse, you can apply it generally to David, to that point in time. But it also is absolutely uh, applied to Jesus Christ. So another application. I said earlier about Acts 2.42, a New Testament author that quotes the Psalms and directly ties it to Jesus. So we read here in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And being let go, they came into their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. 
And they, when they heard it, lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, thou that, that's, thou that didst make the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them is, who by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples, and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves in array, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For of a truth in this city against the holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, were gathered together. And verse 28 reads, To do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. So here the apostles quote that psalm and, and quote it in relation to that point in time. That point in time being that Jesus came to establish his kingdom. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom was rejected. Jesus was crucified. He rose again. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, For unto which of the angels he said at any time, Thou art my son, and this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we have the promise that the, the kingdom will be established. That kingdom will be established. But again, the interpretation or the application, if you will, of a general view of that psalm is that the apostles applied it to that point in time where the, the, the kingdom was rejected at that point in time. And they applied that psalm. Again, um, it's a portion of Psalm 2 that can be applied to David, that is being applied to Jesus Christ at that point in time. But I believe that the interpretation of Psalm 2 in its totality points to a, it's pointing to Messiah to be sure. It's prophetic, absolutely, but it is pointing to the future kingdom where the entire world is established under Jesus Christ. And we see that as we move into the second section, which is Christ's kingdom rule, verses 7 through 9. So we read in, in Psalm uh, verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has sent unto me, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. We read in Acts chapter 13, verse 32 and 33, We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Again, establishing the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ still gives us hope that the promise of that kingdom being established on earth, that promise is still alive. It did not die on the cross. It was brought forth again when, Christ, when God rose Jesus from the dead. So, the key verse for me in establishing that this psalm is narrow in its view, prophetic, speaking of Jesus, is, uh, is that verse. It's chapter 7, verse 7. But now let's go on to verse 8 for a second. It reads, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. So again, you can't apply that to David, because David wasn't given rule over the entire world. David was given rule as king as Israel. The only one that's been given the authority to rule the entire world is Messiah. But I, we're going to take a step back from verse 8 for a second, because we see that God has given the decree that this is his son, he has begotten him, and he will rule the world. And in looking at the study, I, for a second, I was taken back to Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, we read of the temptation of Christ by none other than Satan. 
And if we, if you look at Luke chapter four, verse eight, we see, uh, we read again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And verse 10 reads, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So I think of this. I thank God for putting it in my mind because it's, it, there's an application here for us. And that is, we know that God has decreed that the, the world will be under subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet Satan comes along and in his temptation to Christ says, bow down before me. Takes him to a mountain and says, here, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Bow down to me and I will give this to you. Typical of the lies that Satan brings forth. So the first application is Satan's promises are not true. Think of what he told Eve in the Garden of Eden. You will surely not die. It might not have been a literal death at the time, but it was the most catastrophic death of all, of all mankind because it separated us from the Father. Right? The second part is Satan promises things that God has already given us. Jesus was already Messiah, King, Lord. His kingdom was established. It may not have been established at that point in time, but God is not bound by time. His kingdom is established. Yet Satan is trying to give something to Christ, asking for Christ's worship in exchange for something he already had. Let's not give up the, the, the things that God has already given us for the lies that Satan brings forth. Let's not do that. And the third thing is, if you do fall into those wiles of the devil, you'll be dis- you're going to be disappointed. You know, Satan's promises are always going to disappoint it just We see that time and time again. We see it in the scriptures. We may see it in our own lives. So, you know, just it's a tangent, yes, but I found it interesting that we see in Psalm 8 that the kingdom is established. It's God who is decreeing it. It's no one else. God is saying it. Yet Satan tries to give the Son of Man kingdoms that are already his by birthright, by who he is. Those kingdoms were already established and decreed under him. But what's more fascinating is that Christ doesn't debate him on, well, those kingdoms are mine. What are you talking about? He goes to the heart of the matter. We are not to worship. You should worship God and God alone. I'm not going to bow down to worship you. I'm going to bow down and worship the God of the universe. And so it's, it's another interesting point is, as, as we have these spiritual battles is, is to focus on the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter here, as Jesus understood it, was that worship belonged to God and God only. It wasn't debating the merits of the promise. It was debating, or not debating, addressing that God was the one to be worshipped. So, apologize for that little tangent, but I thought it was worthwhile to discuss. Um, chapter, verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We see this phrase quoted time and time again in the New Testament. We see it specifically in Revelation. We see it in Revelation chapter 2, verse 27. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 reads, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God into his throne. 
And in verse uh, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, we see coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Um, thanks be to God that we're living in a time of grace. So as I'm reading this, I have this imagery of, of a time where um, I drop one of my wife's uh, pieces of pottery and it shatter all over the place. And I will tell you, um, I found pieces for, for weeks and weeks on end because that stuff just is utterly destroyed. And the imagery that's used here of using the iron scepter to destroy all the pots like clay. I mean, I, I can vividly imagine the destruction having seen one clay pot destroyed versus, you know, everything else. But, you know, we're living under a time of grace and God is inviting us in. But God, God and God is going to judge and his judgment is going to be swift. We read in Revelation uh, early on, when Jesus comes to establish his millennial kingdom, that he comes in a robe and the robe is filled with blood. And on his thigh is written the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's, it's, it's not going to be pretty, people. I mean, thankfully, we're not going to suffer any of that. Mankind will. But it should give us, it should give us, it should motivate us to share within our sphere of influence the future events that are to come. And that they can be saved from that destruction. They can be spared from that, that they can enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and will be able to rule with him in that millennial kingdom. So, again, we're living under a time of grace, but there is a time of judgment and he will judge. So moving on now to verses 10 and 12. God issues a warning at the end of this psalm. But he ends it with a benediction. Again, just showing the mercy of God that despite all that is foretold, all that it will happen, there's still an opportunity. Repent. Repent. Change your ways. So there's four words that I see here um, in these last three verses. <clears throat> and the four words that I see are wisdom, service, adoration, and trust. Wisdom. It's within our reach. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord, I should say, is the beginning of wisdom. So be wise, O men. Fear the Lord. Fall under. Be subject to Him. Service. Serve the Lord with fear, the psalmist says in verse 11. Matthew 20, verse 28 reads, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. The Son of Man has already done His part. He has served us. He has served us beyond belief. Dying on the cross giving us salvation or the ability to be saved. It's now incumbent on us to return that service. It's now incumbent on us to offer worship worthy of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Like, we should be, we should be in awe uh, to be before a holy God. It should be frightening to fall under the judgment of a holy and just, just God who's going to rule righteously, will rule justly. And the last word, adoration, uh, to render adoration to the Son. We see, kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Um, I was sharing a little bit with, um, with Pete about that word, kiss. And let's, let's think about that word, kiss, for a moment. Um, we see in Luke chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, uh, the sinful woman who comes before Jesus and she's there in the company of all of the Pharisees and 
She is crying. She is at his feet weeping. And she's using the tears of her, of, of her eyes to clean the feet of the Lord Jesus. And she's using her hair. And she's anointing him. And she's just in, in absolute deep worship of him. That, that is where we should be. So we think of that word kiss. And now think of the word kiss in light of Luke chapter 22, verses 47 and 48, where Judas uses a kiss to betray the Lord Jesus. Now, I will, I will submit to you that Judas was in the company of that woman when he saw how she worshipped him by kissing his feet, by washing his feet with, his tears, with her tears and cleaning them up with her hair. Yet he chose a kiss to betray the Lord Jesus. And what does Jesus tell him? You betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I could just think the irony, like all that you have seen, how people have come to worship me, and you would use that object of worship and adoration, a kiss, to betray me, to betray me. It's just amazing that that can happen. But again, the whatever promises Satan provided to Judas, we don't know. We know he was overtaken by Satan himself that caused him to betray uh, the Lord Jesus uh, in that matter. Um, but at the end of the day, we're called to worship the Lord and to kiss the Lord. And that example in Luke chapter 7, um, verses 37 and 38, I, I believe is a wonderful picture of this woman on her knees just acknowledging. And you see later on, as Simon um, asks the Lord, you know, and, and the Lord gives him a better interpretation that this woman, uh, or explanation I should say, this woman who has sinned so much and has been forgiven so much, the, the, the level of worship that she is rendering to the Lord Jesus is reflective of all that she has been forgiven. So hopefully we can find ourselves in a place to, to render that level of worship regardless of how much it's been forgiven in our lives, but to be able to bring that, for, that type of worship to our Lord Jesus and to, and to come to Him in that way. And then the benediction. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. What a wonderful promise at the end of this. It starts with the question, why are the nations enraged? How can the people do such a vain thing? And it ends with, blessed are they that put their trust in Him. So in conclusion, again, there's the different brothers are going to bring forth uh, their study of the Psalms. And, and you're going to see again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Christ's nature, Christ's work, um, Christ's rejection. His suffering and his death and his resurrection um, brought forth. Um, but it's important to note in this psalm that we see that Christ is not only the Son of God, but he is King, he is Messiah. And one of the important things that, that I pray for me and that I will pray for us all, um, and I ask you to pray as well, is <clears throat> we started by looking at Luke chapter 24, verse 44, um, talking about how Jesus explained to the disciples that all these things must happen so that it would be fulfilled, those things that were written in the Law of Moses and those things that were written uh, in the Psalms. But then he says in chapter, in, in verse 45, the next verse, then opening he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. So it's my prayer that God opens up our hearts and our minds to understand the Scriptures, the, the deep thoughts of Him, and that those thoughts motivate us that they move us into a place of worship that we've never been before. Um, 
in that in that learning of that understanding um, that we may be drawn nearer to him draw me nearer to his bleeding side that we may understand the sacrifice that was brought forth on that cross and again that that sacrifice brings us closer to him into a deeper level of worship and finally that in that drawing nearer to him at the end of the day that we may become more Christ-like, that we may become more like Him every day more and more. And that as we become more like Him, that that light, that image of Christ, that, that Christ-likeness may be attractive to those in our sphere, those that are around us, that we may win souls uh, for His kingdom. Because again, we know, we know the end. Um, you know, Johnny mentioned earlier today about... Um, this being a war and that we can be wanderers or, you know, we can be active in the fight. I would submit to you that we know from the scriptures that the war is won. The war is won. We know the outcome. The question is, will we become casualties of war? You see, there are battles in our lives each and every day. Battles that we have to go through. Some we win, some we lose. Um, some can be catastrophic if they are lost it can end with the loss of our lives but at the end of the day we will either be active in our pursuit of becoming more Christ-like and winning wars to be on the victorious side with Him to stand with Him in victory or we can become a casualty of war we're still in a battle we're still in a fight we know that from Ephesians chapter 6 which was quoted earlier uh, this morning but we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, principalities of this air. So that is our battle. So again, I would tell you, Psalm chapter 2, the entire world will be subject under the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King. He is the Messiah. He is the one that has been prophesied, spoken of. The question for us now, begin, now is, will we be a casualty of war? Our salvation is sealed. We will be with Him. There's no question about that. But will we enter into eternity in victory, victorious, having run the good fight, as the Apostle Paul said? Or will we stumble in being a casualty of war? Brother Pete, if you could close in prayer.